everybody, Kyle here, and welcome back to a new episode of my Communist Book Club. If you've been following along the last couple episodes, you know we've been reading Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. In our past episode, we began the 10 stories from a red interior section, and we got halfway through a story. Actually, it turns out, maybe only a quarter of a way through a story. In audio audio format, it actually winds up being close to two hours worth of content. So as you're listening to these shows, and I take these little snippets here and there, I hope you can understand this is a much, much bigger piece, but one that I really don't think I can skip over. Resuming today, we'll be hearing from Anna Ilinichna and Elena Yurevna. Ilinichna is going to pick up here just in a second, rebutting what we heard last week in some ways. This is going to talk about some more of the negative aspects of communism and why people were very interested in Gorbachev and the reform movement. A huge thank you to all the listeners out there that have been participating, following along, and reading with us. As always, if you'd like to grab a copy of this book, there's some links in the uh, podcast show notes. If you've got stories of your own, please feel free to reach out. I've had such amazing connections thanks to this. To everyone doing that, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the outreach, the insight. It means a lot, and I hope overall it makes a much better podcast. Without further ado, let's dive right into it. Anna Ilinichna. It wasn't that long ago, but it's as though it happened in another era, a different country. That's where we left our naivete and romanticism, our trust. No one wants to remember it now because it's unpleasant. We've lived through a lot of disappointment since then. But who could say that nothing has changed? Back then, you couldn't even bring a Bible over the border. Did you forget that? When I'd come visit them from Moscow, I'd bring my relatives in Kaluga flour and noodles as presents, and they would be grateful. Have you forgotten? No one stands in line for sugar or soap anymore, and you don't need a ration card to buy a coat. With Gorbachev, it was love at first sight. Today, they disparage him. He betrayed the USSR. He sold our country out for pizza. But I remember how amazed we were. Shocked. We finally had a normal leader, one we didn't have to be ashamed of. We would tell one another the stories of how he'd stopped his motorcade in Leningrad and went out into the street, or how he refused to accept an expensive gift at a factory. During a traditional dinner, All he had to drink was a cup of tea. He smiled, gave speeches without reading from a piece of paper. He was young. None of us believed that the Soviet state would ever fall apart, that salami would magically appear in the stores, that you wouldn't have to stand in a kilometer-long line to buy a foreign-made bra anymore. We were used to getting everything through connections, from subscriptions to the World Classics Library, to chocolates, to tracksuits from the GDR, being friendly with the butcher so he would save you a piece of meat. Soviet rule seemed eternal. We thought that there would be enough of it left over for our children and grandchildren. It ended abruptly, when no one expected it to. Today, it's clear that Gorbachev himself didn't see it coming. He wanted change, but he didn't know how to change things. No one was prepared. No one. Not even the people who tore down the wall. We pick up with a really interesting piece today. 
We hear about ration cards to buy coats and standing in line for sugar, obviously negative aspects of the Soviet Union, especially in the later days. Unlike Yerivna, Yelenichna is unhappy with the state of affairs and actually a fan of Gorbachev in some ways. Very unpopular opinion, as we're going to see. Many people feeling betrayed and even her having some experience with this herself. But she says some very positive notes of a very down-to-earth person that one can relate to, turning down fancy gifts from factories, only having tea at formal dinners, not being too extravagant. They say they thought there was going to be something left over for their grandchildren. I find that to be one of the most interesting parts. The idea that we all likely share, we, we assume that our lives are going to be as stable tomorrow as they were today, barring any kind of unforeseen circumstances. We have a dependency on a belief in the normal so we can plan our lives and work towards things. In that way, it's not at all unreasonable to assume that pushing for change would not destroy your government and have it collapse into a whole new system, but instead to shift it to something be more beneficial to the people living within it. As we just heard, that wasn't the case. There wasn't enough left. And uh, even Gorbachev didn't expect the change to the degree it came. And if he did, he didn't know how to handle it. People weren't prepared. Outside of that clip, the speaker mentions how new books were welcome guests. They would allow anyone in at night if they were bringing something uh, new around, even if it meant three in the morning. They talk about cracking jokes at the government's expense, probably in the kitchens, as talked about before. They say that nocturnal life was magical. This nocturnal life being the uh, maybe more clandestine, personal, exploring interests in the evening, you know, having some... Uh, anti-governmental views they couldn't express, yet in the morning they would revert back to their typical selves, as they say, average Soviet citizens, quote, slaving away for the regime, end quote. She mentions that after work, they'd run back to the kitchens trying to catch American news through crackling or jammed news stations. She says she even has grown fond of the memory of the crackling static. Ilinichna mentions fighting with her father, saying, if you don't return your party card, I'll stop talking to you. This being in the early 90s there, as we're going to hear in a bit, a lot of party cards were returned. To this, he cried, likely conflicted between the life he was living and the ultimatum he was being given. But I am speaking on his behalf, I can only assume. She says that families fell apart from these disagreements. And no wonder why. Interesting, uh, uh, interesting that she's the one that mentions how families were falling apart because of these disagreements, but yet she was the one yelling that she would never talk to her father if he didn't return the card. That being said, time changes people, and we can only learn from our hindsight. She also calls this time feeling like she was a zombie. She had spent time dredging her Soviet mentality out of herself for years to come. She goes on to talk about how much money they spent on periodicals. I believe her and her husband were spending at one point an entire paycheck on being subscribed to roughly 20 periodical services. So a paycheck a month just going to that. It speaks to the interest in consuming other information and consuming news that relates to change, trying to get an insight or a scoop to get beyond the Pravda. Our faith was sincere, naive. We thought that any minute now, there were buses idling outside, waiting to take us away to democracy. 
We'd finally leave behind these run-down Khrushchevkas and move into beautiful houses, build autobahns to replace these broken-down roads, and we'd all turn into respectable people. No one searched for rational proof that any of this would really happen. There was none. What did we need it for? We believed in it with our hearts, not our reason. At the district polling stations, we voted with our hearts as well. No one told us what exactly we were supposed to do. We were free now, and that was that. When you're stuck in an elevator, the only thing you think about are the doors opening. You're ecstatic when they finally open. Pure euphoria. You don't think about how you're supposed to be doing something. You're breathing it in with your whole chest. You're already happy. My friend married a Frenchman who worked at the Moscow Consulate. She'd always be telling him to look at all the energy we Russians have. All right, but can you tell me exactly what all this energy is for? He'd ask her. And neither she nor I could answer him. I'd say, the energy is pulsing, and that's it. I was seeing living people, living faces all around me. Everyone was so beautiful in those days. Where had all these people come from? Only yesterday, you couldn't find them anywhere. In the second clip, we hear the expectation of what happens after freedom. Or I should say, they were expecting freedom, but she mentions not knowing exactly what happens afterwards. As we can take away from hindsight, from history here, when planning any kind of reformations to your government or anything like that, very, very important to get people on the same page. That's how at least some kind of positive change can happen. She mentions expecting freedom and feeling like the moment when you're stuck on an elevator and finally the elevator door opens. But you're only in that time obsessed with the door opening, not necessarily what's going to happen right afterwards. So all of that energy she mentions the Russians having. Well, as the Manta Consulate asked, what's it for? To which they didn't have an answer. At least the two here, they, the, the friends didn't know. They couldn't say. She mentions that people were actually having living faces. From that, it, she paints a picture, uh, especially using the word zombified, that all Russian folks were, were drab and, and just living in a monotonous routine. From other accounts that I hear, that's not necessarily the case. But from this speaker, I am curious to learn more about that. And I hope we hear more as we dive further into this book. I want to know a little bit further what she's talking about in that sense. Though I can't say exactly what she means there, I do see the contrast, or at least I can imagine the contrast, from people being kind of glum and gray, unexcited and maybe a little downtrodden, to the newer state of everyone being energized and feeling alive. Again, the question is, what happens next? What do you do once you have all these people excited and mobilizing? Having excitement for change is great, but seeing it through is a whole other thing. I think that's a huge issue of our day and age as, well, as we just see it daily in the news. From around the globe at that. Elena Yurivna. August 19th, 1991. I got to the district party office. As I walked down the corridor, I could hear how in all of the offices, on all of the floors, all of the radios were on. The receptionist told me that the first secretary wanted to see me. I went into his office. His TV was on at full volume, his face dark. 
He was sitting by the radio, switching between Radio Liberty, Deutsche Welle, the BBC, whatever he could get. On his desk, there was a list of the members of the State Committee on the State of Emergency, the GKJP, the Gang of Eight, as they would later be called. The only respectable one is Varenikov, he told me. He's a general. He's seen action. He fought in Afghanistan. The second secretary came in, then the head of the organizational department. We started talking. How awful. There will be blood. We're going to be drowning in blood. Not everyone, just the ones who deserve it. It's high time to rescue the Soviet Union. There'll be a pile of bodies. There you have it. Gorby is finished. Finally, sane people. Generals are going to take power. The chaos will come to an end. The first secretary announced that the morning planning meeting was canceled. What was there to report on? There were no orders from above. In front of us, he called the police headquarters. Have you heard anything? Nope. We talked some more about Gorbachev. Either he's sick or he's been arrested. All of us were more inclined to believe a third version, that he'd run off to America with his family. Where else could he have gone? That's how we spent the rest of the day, shackled to our phones and our televisions. It was unnerving. Who was going to end up running the country? We waited. I'll be honest with you, we did nothing but wait. It was like Khrushchev's removal. We'd read the memoirs. Naturally, our conversations all revolved around the same things. What freedom? Our people need freedom like a monkey needs glasses. No one would know what to do with it. I apologize for being a broken record. But being an American that had a recent coup attempt with ex-President Trump trying to overthrow our diplomatic systems, cancel votes, ignore... Uh, well, you've watched the news. Basically, a huge amount of attempted election fraud on his part, all while saying it was the other side committing election fraud. Whew, I can absolutely understand that fear of who is going to be running the country tomorrow. Though I'm not a man who's very happy with American politics and haven't been my entire life, hence why there's this podcast around to talk about alternative views, I can absolutely say that I participated in the democratic process. I cast my vote and was terrified to hear our, at the time, aka ex-president, saying disqualify votes, throw away the ones that were mailed in, aka my own, what I'm trying to send in. That fear of not knowing who's going to be in charge, not knowing who's going to have power, I can very much appreciate that now in a way I could not before. Understanding what she means about being glued to the news. I am not much of a news watcher, yet there I sat, watching every breath that could be said, hearing every take of what was going on, knowing in some ways, or in many ways, that people were just uh, running around in circles, making wild guesses. But that, I think, is the most important takeaway. Our governments, our democracies, are just agreements by other people to participate. If the people holding these offices choose not to take power, if they choose not to act, things will fall apart. Just because there is a law that says something does not mean it's going to be carried out. You still have to have people that understand the, the law itself, that, that actually uphold it, that enforce it. There have to be many components to make a government actually function, but agreement is the largest one. So when you have a coup, which lodges disagreement right at the heart of your institution, well, you get many, many problems that come from it. And as we're going to hear throughout this, there's the fallout takes a very personal, personal tone. At 9 p.m., the first secretary gathered us all in his office again. The head of the district KGB briefed us. 
he told us about the mood among the people. According to him, the people supported the GKJP. They weren't outraged by the pooch. Everyone was fed up with Gorbachev. Ration cards for everything but salt. No vodka. The KGB boys had gone around town recording people's conversations. The arguments and cues. It's a coup. What's going to happen with our country? There's been no uprising in my house. Bed's in the same place it was last night. The vodka's no different. So that's it for freedom. Uh Uh-huh. The freedom to stand in line for socks. Someone must have really wanted some gum to chew and some Marlboros to smoke. It's high time. The country's on the verge of ruin. Gorbachev is a Judas. He wanted to sell out the motherland for dollars. The blood's about to flow. We can't do anything around here without bloodshed. In order to save the country, the party, we need jeans. Nice lingerie and salami, not tanks. So you want the good life? Good luck. Forget about it. In a word, the people were waiting, just like we were. The people were waiting. That's a very interesting clip right there. I maybe always say that, but truly, that's why I clip them. As a reminder, this is not all that's in the book. There's a lot more. And outside this clip, we've got a lot to talk about. So in that case, we have the head of the district KGB coming in and giving an update on the mood and attitude of the people. As we heard there, people wanted things, uh, commercial products, lingerie. They wanted jeans. They wanted salami. They wanted things that made life nicer. We also have someone in that clip saying the beds are still where they were last night. No coup happening in my home. All in all, a a disagreement about how bad life was. What are the coup? uh, I'm sorry. What are what is the life like standing in line for all of this? Not enough ration cards. So then everything being pointed at Gorbachev in this case. And I think that was the sentiment that the KGB person was was giving this this update to the office. I think he was trying to convey that the people were angry at Gorbachev, but yet the the USSR was going to stay intact. That's at least my takeaway from this. I could very well be wrong. The, the, The information fed back to me is that of people just want Gorby out. They're, they they are fine with this gang of eight that's coming in, the, the GKJP, not upset about the coup, just upset about the current standards of living, so let's change them. <laughs> Back, someone in that clip saying, uh, they need nice lingerie, not tanks. Our speaker mentioned something about they should have spent more time reading Lenin and Marx, not detective novels. She said, by the end of the day, all of those novels, the detective ones, were checked out. We also hear about the GKJP not being the people suitable of saving the country or communism. She says they were basic apparatchiks. They didn't have anything special about them. They didn't have the the gumption to go and make change. She said China is where the GKJP triumphed. The people that were out there chanting for change, chanting for Yeltsin, where are they now? What are they doing to make the world a better place? She says half of the country was waiting for communists to win. But where were their leaders? People were returning their party cards in bulk. People would toss the cards to headquarters at night. And in the morning, they would be out there picking up the party cards and the consumal certificates, bringing them inside, wondering, what do you do with this? And having no signals from above. She says that some people left while others changed their positions. So some people literally uh, migrated out of the country while others just start throwing out everything Soviet, taking only imported things, buying a lot of new. And again, 
tossing out party cards as if they were a, a black mark or a stain on their record. She says, Tsarist Russia slipped away in days, and so did communism. In days. Some people, she goes on to say, were hiding these membership cards and even talks about a family that was hiding a Lenin bust. Very, very eager for the day that that, that family claims communism come back because they'd be one of the first to pin the red bow on it. Then she begins reading out resignation letters that came through, again in bulk. She expresses that people were handing in these resignations and, ooh, there's some uh, inflammatory comments written on some of them. You had to live through this and not drop dead from the horror. People stood in line outside the district party headquarters like it was a store. They were queuing up to return their party membership cards. A woman got in to see me. She was a dairy woman. In tears, she entreated me, What do I do? What am I supposed to do? In the newspapers, it says that we're supposed to throw out our party membership cards. She justified herself, saying that she had three children. She had to think of them. Someone was spreading rumors that the communists were going to be put on trial, exiled, that they were already fixing up the old barracks in Siberia. A new shipment of handcuffs had come into the police headquarters. Someone saw them being unloaded out of covered trucks. Dreadful stuff. And then there were the real communists, the ones still devoted to the idea. A young teacher, not long before the pooch, he'd been accepted into the party, but he hadn't been issued a membership card yet. You're going to get shut down soon, he said. Issue me a membership card. Otherwise, I'll never get one. In that moment, people showed their true colors. A man who had fought at the front came to the offices covered in war medals with an icon hanging around his neck. He returned his party membership card, which he had gotten at the front, saying, I don't want to be in the same party as that traitor Gorbachev. Truly, truly, people's characters were revealed. Friends and strangers alike, even relatives. Before, when I'd run into them, it'd be, Oh, hello, Elena Yorivna. How's your health, Elena Yorivna? Suddenly, if one of them saw me, they'd cross the street to avoid me. The principal of the best school in the district. Not long before all of this happened, we'd held an academic party conference at his school on Brezhnev's novels, Malayas and Alia, and Rebirth. He'd read an excellent paper on the leading role of the Communist Party during the Great Patriotic War and on the leadership of Comrade Brezhnev in particular. I had presented him with a certificate from the District Party Committee, a loyal communist, a Leninist. My God, it hadn't even been a month. He saw me on the street and started in on me. Your time is up. You'll have to answer for all of it. First of all, for Stalin. I couldn't breathe. I was so hurt. He was saying that to me? To me? Me, whose father had been in the camps? I never liked Stalin. My father forgave him, but I didn't. I could never forgive him. And there she outlines one of my biggest pet peeves, which is political flip-flopping and blaming people, though you were just part of that group. Huh. That is a frustrating clip to listen to. I've had to, <laughs> you can imagine me over here clipping it and re-listening. I've, I've heard that one about three times today. And mm, 
that and that idea, we we end that clip with a, a principal being given all these accolades that she had delivered upon him. He was a well devoted Communist Party member, and right as the tides were shifting, he takes it upon himself to personally attack others. This isn't a uniquely Russian story in, in, in that regard. That happens every day around the world. Boy, do those people still rub me the wrong way because they're dangerous. I, I think political flip-floppers that are ready to pick up a pitchfork and just kind of metaphorically throw it at someone as soon as it gets into their hand, that's, that's a dangerous person. Someone who will hear the latest propaganda one way or another from whatever side of the aisle and immediately start you know covering themselves in armor and going out to fight like it's some sort of great crusade so my my pet peeve out of the way there it it, it's going to keep hitting us over and over again as, as we make our way through this the juxtaposition between the views before and after towards the start of that clip she says people were queuing up to return their membership cards. She has a woman, uh, a, a dairy woman comes into her office and they start talking. The dairy woman's unsure what to do. She has children. So does she return her card? She seems very conflicted. If she's crying, it to me, well, part of me thinks that she wants to maybe stay with the party. Another part is that she can't because she's afraid that the other people out there are going to attack her, confront her, make her life worse. We see that happening here. We see Arivna talk about not being able later to have a job as easily because of her Communist Party ties. She talks about some people being believers, a young man coming in and wanting a membership card. He says that if, if you don't do it now, you're going to be shut down and these won't be printed any longer. So let me have one if you can. An older man who fought on the front and was covered in medals came in, but said he wouldn't be a party member with Gorby, the traitor. So he returns his card. Betrayal summarizes this to me. A feeling that people were changing their values and opinions overnight, and the fact that they were going out and making some people's lives worse from it. Regardless of the frustration, we should be very mindful in our daily lives that an eye for an eye is a gut reflex of how to handle these things. But listen to how hypocritical some of the, the statements are. So with people telling Yerivna, or I should say you're yelling at Yerivna about communists, having labor camps, but yet threatening to send them off to Siberia in turn, meaning let's send the communists off to labor camps now. Continuing and perpetuating the cycle, becoming the, quote, villain that you were just trying to defeat. She says getting into some of the documents some KGB reports and such, people were butchering each other. Now, this is interesting, and I don't really have a clip pulled out for this, but she goes on to say, looking through these files, the spying, a lot of it was people like neighbor on neighbor. She talks about family members fighting over vegetable patches and turning one another in, spying in communal apartments, someone getting in trouble for singing a rhyme at a wedding. These reports that she calls out seem to be some of the probably most absurd, but what can I say? We can only... Look at the story she presents us with. Then she goes on to tell a story about a mother who was taken away to a labor camp for 17 years. So at night, they came for the mother. She's making noise as she's being taken out of the building. Her neighbor there, she calls out to, says, take care of my daughter. Don't let the daughter wind up in an orphanage. So she's taken away for 17 years. She doesn't come back. And in that time, the neighbor 
Mama Anya takes in that daughter. Well, 17 years pass, and as she's leaving the camp, the original mother, she's able to see the informant's report. And who turned her in other than Mama Anya herself, the neighbor that she asked to take in the daughter? What did Mama Anya get out of it? Well, apparently she got some extra, an extra room for her apartment. She got upgraded to some bigger space. The woman, the original mother, hanged herself. And a quote came through, it's possible to survive the camps, but you can't survive the people. And then finally, the day came. We got a phone call from the district executive committee. We have to shut you down. You have two hours to gather your things and leave. Two hours? Two? A special commission showed up to seal the doors. Democrats. Some locksmith, a young journalist, and that mother of five. I recognized her from the demonstrations, from her letters to the district committee, to our newspaper. She lived in a barracks house with a large family. She gave speeches everywhere she could, demanding a real apartment. She cursed the communists. I'd remembered her face. This was her moment of triumph. When they got to the first secretary's office, he threw a chair at them. In my office, one of the members of the commission went up to the window and demonstratively ripped off the blinds so that I wouldn't take them home? My God! They made me open my handbag. A few years later, I ran into that mother of five on the street. I even remember her name just now. Galina Avde. I asked her, So did you ever get your apartment? She shook her fist in the direction of the regional administration offices. Those bastards lied to me, too. And so on. What else? A crowd was waiting for us outside of the building. Put the communists on trial. Send them off to Siberia. If only we had a machine gun to shoot through all these windows. And we immediately find ourselves back in the violence. The f easily flung threats. The send them to Siberia statements. Is the liberating force here really the heroes? Gotta say, it's not a, it's not a hero I want to support. It's not the, uh, it's not the, the democracy that we're waiting for in the world. She tells us the story of Galina Abde, a woman who had been an advocate for the, the, the reformation, wanting change, wanting a better life. She had been out there. She had been making that change. And when later run into, she didn't benefit from any of it. She shakes her hand and says that she felt betrayed too. And did you notice in that clip, I found it interesting, when that party office was being closed, they sent a whole commission to close it up. They took and like ripped down curtains, she says. I enjoyed the narrator's gasp in her voice, uh, the, 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 the shock. My God, they thought I was going to steal all of this. And as this chapter rounds out, that's what we're left with. Or I should say not this chapter, but this episode. This, this conversation will continue as we're just halfway through it. A reminder that Yerivna was taking a position in her last episode. She was accepting a position in the party that her family was so proud of that they said, make sure your conscience is clear before the people. And now, fast forward, I, I, I don't know of what exactly she did or what she was involved with. I can't say that she ruined anyone's life in particular or why she might be being attacked directly, but we see that a lot. She's being called the criminal. 
She's having old friends, people she gave those awards to, people she associated with, coming up and harassing her about it. She says now, well, at the time this was all going down, she was just spending time pickling stuff in her kitchen, keeping away from the paper and trying not to go out in the world being accosted or assaulted. This is the point where she says no one would give her a job. And I take away that people apparently, I don't know, I, I can't speak to this thoroughly as an outsider, but one thing I take away from hearing these clippets, it sounds to me like people may have just wanted to draw blood for the sake of drawing blood and expressing anger, that they didn't choose to see a difference between the communists of old under the Stalinist repressions and deportations and executions versus the communists of 1990, especially this woman who is not one that makes any kind of decisions or calls like that from her admission. It looks like just transferred anger. She'd mentioned Soviet gold before. And in this part, she brings that, that topic back up. People weren't so eager to give her a job because they thought that the communists had divvied up all of the wealth, that she had some stake in a big pipeline or maybe a gas station of her own. No Soviet gold, just an apartment. It was a dark time for Yurivna. She mentions about coming home unsure what was going on in the world and contemplating committing suicide of her own. It's an interesting juxtaposition, seeing the inside and what was going on in the outside. How were people motivated? I hope this part gave a little bit of light. I, it's a deep, deep chapter. I think the back and forth is extremely illuminating. Next week, we get into the coup from the view of Anna Ilinichna. I'm really excited to hear the continuation of this conversation. I think we'll have about one or two more episodes on this one alone. Every time I open up this uh, 10 stories from a red interior section and the butterflies crushed against the pavement, I keep saying, oh, I'll summarize. I'll jump ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll be able to nicely truncate this for people. But it's the voices we're here to highlight. So what can I do but highlight the voices? These aren't my stories to tell. I'm an outsider looking in. At best, I hope I can give context to them. And I hope that I can get people interested in learning this history that is so forbidden in the West, or at least just not talked about to the degree it should be. There's so much to learn. So much of this story is relevant to everyday life, the rise and fall of nations, the beliefs of people, how to mobilize each other. What do people actually care about? What's motivating people to make changes? Sadly, again, in this episode, we heard a lot of blue jeans, lingerie, and salami being the motivators. Is it that simple? Are people always going to vote in the interest of what's the sexiest at the moment? If so, how do we fix that? I leave you with some of these questions, and I would look forward to answers if you have any. Give me your thoughts. As always, share your history, personal or otherwise. I'd love to hear from you. Check out all the links below. Oh, and I have a nice page set up for everyone to easily find everything. It is at chaosandshadow.com forward slash Kyle. Chaos and Shadow is my other podcast that launched before this. So check out that little page. It's got links to all of my podcasts, everything that's going on. It's got the Twitch page and everything else. You can also find in the show description the links to buy the book. Check it out on Audible, which is where we're hearing chapters. Also, physical format up on Amazon. If you use our link, I get a kickback. Finally, support your local book retailers, though you might have to order this one in. And go, go like and subscribe to us on Twitter and Facebook. Those exist. Kyle Communist on Twitter and Kyle's Communist Book Club on Facebook. Get in the group, share some stories, stay safe, 
and I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.